If you would, take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 24, last chapter in the book of Luke, as we continue to think on the resurrection of Jesus. The two great evidences for the truth that Jesus rose from the dead are first the empty tomb, and we looked into the empty tomb, tomb as it were, last week and saw that. Remember that Jesus was nowhere to be found at that point. Um, just an empty tomb and some angels. So we looked into the empty tomb. The other great evidence for the resurrection is Jesus resurrected and meeting people and talking with him. So the, the, the resurrection appearances of Christ. And so this morning we're going to see in Scripture and with eyes of faith the resurrected Christ. As we try to think about what it was like for these early disciples, these early followers of Jesus, to have Jesus die, and then to have these reports of an empty tomb, which is sort of that that uncertain state that we're in right now. Just imagine what that would be like. And I think the, the way the text sort of summarizes it with these two men that we're going to meet this morning is that they were sad and they were confused. <laughs> I think that's how, I think that's the right way to think about um, how they felt. They were sad and they were confused. They were sad because their friend had died. Their hopes of him being the Messiah had died. And they're confused because these women have showed up and said the tomb's empty and the angels told us that he's risen from the dead. And they, they don't know what to make of that. So imagine how you would feel receiving this news. I think I'd feel sad and confused too. I, I think death brings those things out in, it, does it, in us. We're sad and we're sort of confused. I remember my first... Um, the first time I re- ever really experienced what it was like to have someone close to you die, I was probably about 10 years old, and my grandfather died. And I can remember very clearly sitting in the funeral home, first time I can remember that experience. And, and suddenly, I didn't know why I, I, started, I started crying. I, I loved my grandfather, but as a 10-year-old, I didn't know him terribly well. But as I think back to that, you know what I was? I was sad, and I was totally confused. I had no idea what to make of this. I think that's how we feel in response to death, but can't we just feel like that in life in general? (laughs) Sort of sad and confused. Maybe things have not gone the way that we expected, whether in a particular situation or maybe just life in general. You're just confused and, and sad. Maybe you struggle with feelings of depression. Often that's coupled with being confused. We're wondering about the purpose of our lives. We don't understand where God is, what is he doing in this world. It was a strange providence. I thought of that that James Taylor song, The Frost is on the Pumpkin. The way that song starts is James Taylor says, Moving in silent desperation, keeping an eye on the Holy Land, a hypothetical destination. Who is this walking man? This, this picture, someone walking in silent desperation towards the Holy Land that he calls a hypothetical destination. Sometimes we can feel that way. We're just sort of walking through life, and it's, it, it's sort of silent desperation. And that's how many people live apart from Christ. And even in Christ, we can fall into those feelings of sadness and despair and confusion. And so as we look at the passage today, this is what I think Jesus shows up, and he comes, and, and the message that Luke is giving us is this. Jesus, resurrected and revealed, brings comfort and clarity in the midst of our sadness and confusion. That's a long sentence. Let me say it again. 
Jesus, resurrected and revealed, brings comfort and clarity in the midst of our sadness and confusion. Now, I don't want to make it sound like Jesus, resurrected and revealed to us, comes in and he's this magic potion that eliminates sadness and confusion from our lives. That that doesn't happen, right? I mean, we still are plagued by those things. But I, I do want us to see that when we understand that Jesus is risen, and when he reveals himself to us as our Savior, as our Redeemer, that it does have the effect of helping us deal with the sadness of life and the confusion of life in a unique way, that looking to Christ is an, an amazing remedy to those things that plague us. We can be filled with comfort about death. We can be filled with comfort about our purpose in the world. We can have clarity about how we are supposed to live and about the purpose of life in light of the fact that Jesus is risen from the dead. So let's read about some guys that were sad and confused who met the resurrected Christ, and when he revealed himself to them, it was as if their sadness and confusion left and they were filled with comfort and clarity. So this is immediately after they have seen the empty tomb. This is the same day. Verse 13 of Luke 24. I'm going to read a pretty good chunk through verse 35, but it's a great story. That very day, two of them, this would be two of the disciples, not the twelve, but just some followers of Christ. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But, but we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it's, it's now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early this morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going further, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So they went in to stay with them. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem 
And they found the eleven, and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. We'll stop there for now. Let's, I just want to kind of, let's, let's tell the story again. Let's think about this story and then some specific application. But it's just such a wonderful story. It's good to pause and, and think about it. Luke sets the scene in verses 13 and 14. He talks about two disciples, two followers of Jesus, not part of the 12, but followers of Jesus. And they're heading to a town called Emmaus, that's, uh, which is probably where at least one of them lived, given that later on it looks like they invite Jesus into their, their home um, to have a meal. The text tells us that the town was about, it, was, it doesn't say miles, but they've converted it for us. It was about seven miles away. Uh, so if you think about, you know, 15, 20 minutes a mile, this is about a two-hour walk um, if you're focused, and these guys weren't. Um, they were probably spent more time talking than walking, and, and that slowed them down. So they had a pretty good walk ahead of them. They probably were in Jerusalem for the feast, um, for Passover, and now they are heading back to their home because number one the Passover is over and number two this whole thing with Jesus is over because for all they know he's dead and so they're heading home but they're talking about these things they're walking they're talking and they're talking about all that had happened we'll see exactly what their conversation was about in a moment but for now just kind of picture this pair walking down the road talking to each other I don't know how busy this, this road or this street or this path or whatever it was, how busy it was, but at some point in this journey, they're overtaken by someone. Now, this doesn't happen in our culture, but probably more so in theirs. So this uh, man comes up, and it says they had no idea who he was, but we as the readers know who it was. We know that it's, that it's Jesus. Uh, you know, that's part of what makes this such a great story is that we have sort of this inside information. It, it, there's a hint of suspense to the story, but more than suspense, you know what this story is? It's funny. There's humor in this story. There's humor in the Bible, if you, ever, if you didn't think there was, but it, it's funny to watch these guys talking with Jesus, not knowing who he is and the things that they're saying to him. Um, in fact, one commentator that I read said that this story, in, in fact, it actually pokes fun at those who would deny the resurrection. It shows the foolishness of denying that Jesus is alive. That'd be like not knowing someone that's standing right in front of you. You know, we can often feel like the burden of proof as Christians lies on us to prove the resurrection. But I think Luke wants us to feel that, that those who would deny the fact that Jesus came back from the dead, it's like they're missing something that's right in front of them. That that's how clear it is that Jesus has risen from the dead. Now, it's comical, but we can't be too hard on these guys. It's not that they didn't recognize Jesus, but rather it says that they were kept from recognizing him. Their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Whether that's Jesus or, or God, it's not really worth debating about since, in a sense, since they are the same. Uh, but they're kept from recognizing Jesus. This happens in other resurrection accounts that they interact with Jesus and they don't know who he is at first until he reveals himself to them. Um, and it's not their fault. They're not, not their fault that they don't recognize Jesus. Their inability to know who Jesus was has nothing to do with Jesus' resurrected body not looking like him, like, like who he was previously. 
but rather we're reminded that Jesus chooses to reveal and to hide himself according to his own will. We don't know why he does in this case. It seems like he has something he wants to teach these two guys before he lets them know who he is, but we don't really know. What we do know is that they do come to see him, and we'll see this more later, but they come to recognize him through the scriptures and through the breaking of bread. Very interesting. But back to the story. Jesus sort of breaks into this conversation walking down the road. He says, as if it were, he says, you know, hey guys, I'm sorry to interrupt. I just sort of overheard you talking, and I was curious, you know, what, what are you guys talking about? And the men look at him, and they look at him, and it says they were sad. One of them, Cleopas, who in my mind may have been Luke's source for this story. I don't know. Remember Luke's gathering witnesses? And this story is only in the book of Luke. And he's the only guy of the two that's named. I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. But Cleopas looks at him and says, are you the only person who was in Jerusalem and knows nothing about everything that happened? Which shows us how significant the events of Jesus' life and death were. It's the assumption that everyone knew about it. It'd be like walking around the streets of Chicago today and people are talking about the Cubs being in the playoffs and you say, what are you guys talking about? And like, what? Are you the only person in Chicago that doesn't know the Cubs are in the playoffs? Or, or maybe better than, because no one cares about baseball, but maybe better would be, uh, imagine days after the World Trade Center attacks, that you're walking in New York City and people are having a conversation and you say, what are you guys talking about? They say, what do you mean what are we talking about? Everyone, not just in New York, but in the whole world is talking about what happened here a couple of days ago. So that's sort of the feel of what's going on here. You know, the Cleopas' question, though, just to point out the humor again, that's funny. <laughs> I mean, he says, are you the only one who doesn't know what happened in Jerusalem? If anyone knows about what happened in Jerusalem, it's Jesus. I mean, he was the center of everything that happened in Jerusalem. But they answer his question. He, he gives them the chance. He says, what things? He sort of says, well, you tell me. So first they, they tell Jesus what Jesus was like. Uh, they say he's a man from Nazareth. He was a prophet. He spoke for God. So he was mighty indeed. He'd, he'd cleansed lepers. He'd, he'd healed the sick. He'd, he'd calmed storms. They talk about the fact that he raised the dead. They said one time he fed 5,000 people. You know how much food he had? He had, he had five loaves of bread and two fish, and he fed 5,000 people. And then they start talking about uh, not that he just did amazing things, but the word that he spoke. He was powerful. He was mighty in, in word. No one ever spoke like this man. He spoke with authority, not like the scribes. And they talked about his messages on the kingdom of God and how they were just breathtaking. And the stories that he told, these parables, it just sort of pierced you right in the heart about the prodigal son and the parable of the sower and the parable of the wedding feast. And as they talk about Jesus, they're you know, just filled with excitement about all that he was. It's as if he, he's still alive in the stories that they're telling. But then they realize, they say, but, but our chief priests and our religious leaders, they handed him over to death and they had him crucified. All that he did, it seemed like a waste. And you see the dejection that the disciples were feeling in these words. They say, they say, they say but we, verse 21, but we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. They have no hope that that's going to happen anymore. All their hopes are dashed. And that is why they are so sad. Unmet expectations. 
There's not much more disappointing in life than unmet expectations when you, you're so sure something is going to happen and then it doesn't. And these guys had banked their lives and their very souls on Jesus being the Messiah. And then poof, it's gone. His death killed that dream. But you know, they're not just sad. They're also confused. They're not just talking about past events. They're talking about what's happening in the present. And what happened that morning has got them just totally discombobulated. They have no idea what to think. They tell Jesus how some of the women of their company came and they said they went to the tomb and the tomb was empty. Jesus' body wasn't there. And they say they even said they saw a vision of angels who said that Jesus is still alive. And so we sent, you know, some some of our guys went there and they checked it out and they said it's the same thing. But here's the deal is no one's seen Jesus. So we're, we're still really confused. So they're in a sense saying, you know, the empty tomb is really good evidence that something happened, but no one's seen him yet. And so if no one's seen him yet, then we don't know. We're not really convinced. I mean, you know, if someone could talk to him like face to face, maybe walking down a road, then we would believe that he was really alive. But the whole scene kind of reminds me of Joseph's brothers. Remember in, in, in Genesis where Joseph's brothers come to Egypt and they're talking about their brother that they had sold into slavery. Their brother who's standing right before him and they don't realize that it's him. And eventually Joseph can't take it anymore and he reveals himself to them. And so we're kind of waiting for that moment when Jesus is going to say, hey guys, it's me. And we've got to wait a little bit longer. He's got something he wants to say to them first. So they explain this whole thing. And Jesus, the great comforter, he looks lovingly in their eyes and he says, you guys are so dull. That's kind of what it means. That's what one translation is. Oh, foolish ones and slow of heart. He rebukes them. It's not because he doesn't rebuke them because they didn't believe the witness of the women. They should have believed that, but they, they didn't. And he doesn't recall the words of Jesus. That's what the angels did to the women, right? Don't you remember the words that Jesus spoke? He can't do that because that would sort of blow his cover. Um, he's, he's acting like he's ignorant about these things. So he can't say, don't you remember what Jesus said? Oh, wait, I don't know who Jesus is. But he says, what does he say? He says, don't you remember what Moses and all the prophets said? Don't you, don't you believe what the prophets have spoken? He says they missed everything that the prophets said. That, that Jesus had to suffer these things before entering in his glory. That the crucifixion was in fact a divine necessity. It had to happen. And then there's verse 27. This is the verse that I think nearly every Bible professor in my undergrad and seminary career said, if I could be at any point in the Bible, this is the spot that I would be. Where Jesus says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus does biblical theology. He goes to Moses, a reference to the first five books of the Old Testament. And then he goes to the prophets, which would encompass every other part of the Old Testament scriptures. And he shows how they speak about him. Just a side note, as I was reading this, I think you could maybe say Cleopas potential author of Hebrews, you know. We won't get into that debate. But we don't know exactly where Je where did Jesus go in the scriptures? What did he what did he say? You know, maybe he hit it from a broad theme, this theme of of the necessity of suffering before exaltation or 
the necessity of judgment before salvation. Or maybe he talked about the sacrificial system, how the blood of bulls and goats could never wash away sins. Maybe you went to some specific scriptures. Maybe you went to Isaiah 53 that we looked at recently, and he drew out this theme of the suffering servant. Don't you guys see this? He had to suffer. It's so clear here. Maybe you went to Psalm 22, and they saw this Psalm 22 with new eyes. Oh, my goodness. That sounds just like crucifixion. And David was writing that. This is speaking about who Christ was. Their eyes were still blind to who was speaking to them, but they began to see Jesus in a new way throughout all of the Old Testament scriptures. What a wonderful encouragement for us to read the Old Testament, isn't it? And to look for Jesus in its pages. He is there. Remember the Jesus Storybook Bible. Every story whispers his name, it says. We see him all over the place. He's the greater Moses. He's the greater Joshua. He's Isaac on the altar. And he's the ram that's caught in the thicket. He's the greater David. He's the Passover lamb. He's the the great high priest. He's Jonah in the whale, and he's Jonah on the beach, resurrected from the dead. He's the tabernacle. He's the temple. He's all over the place in the Old Testament. Read the Old Testament. Look for Jesus. Read the Jesus Storybook Bible. (laughs) I'm serious. They came out with a version for adults because adults loved it so much. Even if you don't have kids, you should have the Jesus Storybook Bible and see how Jesus shows up all over the Old Testament. It's beautiful. So Jesus is walking and talking. He's explaining all these things. I can't imagine how long it took them to get there. Uh, and, and as Jesus is talking, the three of them are they're, they're there, and suddenly the, the sun is setting behind them. So you can sort of see this picture. The day is dragging on, and, and it's, it's coming to a close. Jesus has still, still not revealed himself to them. And he acts as if he's going to go further, but they, they stop and they say, no, just join us for the night. The, the day is gone. You should do with this they probably want to talk more conversation continues they prepare this meal and then they sit down to eat and it was it wouldn't have been the host would would normally take the job of breaking the bread but jesus takes the job he blesses it it says it says there very clearly he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them sounds familiar doesn't it sounds just like the lord's supper he takes the bread and blesses it breaks it and gives it to them. And right in that moment, in the breaking of bread, their eyes are open. And they see that it's Jesus. And then what happens? He's gone. He vanishes from their sight. Can you imagine? In my mind's eye, Jesus sort of smiles and winks, and then he's gone. (laughs) And then there's this silence as Cleopas and his friend, they sort of look at each other, and then they go, what just happened? And, and they start talking about it. You know, it seems very proper here. Did not our hearts burn within us when he talked to us on the road, when he opened the scriptures to us? But they are losing their minds at this point, you know. And they're, they're talking, they're replaying this conversation. And they do say, you know, our hearts were, were burning within us as he talked. It was, it was like listening to Jesus. Because it was. We were listening to Jesus. That's why it felt like that. And so... Finally, they, they get together and they say, we got to tell everyone. It, it, it had been too late to travel, but, you know, they had to tell someone. So Cleopas, you know, grabbed his cell phone and sent a text. We just saw Jesus for real. No, of course, they had to run. And how long is it? Seven miles. It's a long way. 
I say they made it in under an hour. It's about an eight-minute pace. <laughs> they got adrenaline going, maybe faster. Jessica could do that, so they could do it. I bet. Not that that didn't mean that to sound rude. Uh, they come to the rest of the disciples. They bust in the door, ready to tell their story. And what do they? What do the disciples all say? Peter just saw Jesus. They come back in and the the Lord appeared to Peter. And they say, no way. The Lord appeared to us too. And they tell this story and how he was revealed to them in the breaking of bread. Such a a great story. Oh, and the stage is is set because it's not not over. We're going to be in this same room at the same time next week. And if you think they're excited now, just wait. But but think about now, what's going on here? What, what, What are we learning? I want to give you three things. First of all, this story says Jesus is risen. It's very clear. Jesus is risen. The empty tomb and the appearances of the risen Christ are totally compelling, especially in light of this transformation that occurs within the disciples. Remember, they are doubting, they are fearful, and suddenly they're running through the night seven miles to say he's risen, and then we see them in Acts proclaiming boldly, We've said it in the past. Luke wrote these things. He put them down, not for us to pick apart, but to prove and to give us certainty about what he said. That's what he says at the beginning. I wrote these things to give you certainty about who Jesus was and what he did. Brothers and sisters, the burden of proof for the resurrection does not lie on us. The burden of proof lies on people who deny the resurrection. I've got tons of evidence that Jesus rose from the dead. And so when someone comes to you and says, I don't believe that Jesus rose from the dead, say, tell me the reasons you don't believe it. And if they simply say, well, I don't believe that someone could rise from the dead, that's not a good reason. Show me. I have evidence. I have multiple accounts, eyewitnesses, transformation of the disciples, this tomb that was empty, and there's no good explanation that you can give me for it. The burden of proof does not lie on us. We have plenty of evidence. Jesus is risen. But second, notice this. Jesus is risen. Jesus is hidden. That's the next thing I think we should remember. Jesus is hidden. So having said that we have plenty of evidence for the resurrection, that that our faith in Christ is not a blind leap of faith, but we should remember that in God's sovereignty it, it is faith. And that Jesus is hidden from some. And to come to Jesus, it's not a matter of rational assent, me giving you a bunch of proofs, for why the resurrection is true. But there is an element of faith that must come in, that we have to believe that he truly has risen. And that faith is a supernatural gift that God gives when he wants. As John says, that the Spirit is like the wind. It, it, it blows where it wants. It, we don't know where it comes from. And we don't know where it's, where it's going. That's what the Spirit of God is like. And so we don't know. But as I thought about that, I thought, you know, but we can put ourselves in windy places. I know places that are windy, you know, tops of mountains and other places. And there's spots, there's places where the Spirit blows. And, 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 and you can feel the wind. You can see Him coming. Whether or not we've come to faith in Christ or you're seeking to know Him, Jesus is is risen, Jesus is hidden, but Jesus is also revealed. And he's revealed in these windy places. And the windy places that we see here are in the scriptures and in the breaking of bread. That's how Jesus reveals himself, in the scriptures and in the breaking of bread. 
The two disciples are walking with Jesus. They don't recognize him. How do they come to see who he is? As he opens the scriptures to them and as he breaks bread with them. Now, what does that mean? These are just two quotes that I read in some commentaries. Daryl Bach, it is through sitting with Jesus and listening to him that we get to know him. Another one, a guy named Marshall. In the reading of the scriptures and at the breaking of bread, the risen Lord will continue to be present, though unseen. Jesus is revealed in the scriptures. The scriptures are a windy place. They're a place where the Spirit is, where the Spirit is revealing who he is. I'd encourage you, if you are not a follower of Jesus, if you're a skeptic, or if you just you know, haven't bought into this whole religion thing, search the scriptures. Go there and, and look and try to understand who Jesus is and what he has done. He will reveal himself to you in the scriptures. And if we are Christians, we should seek out this heart that burns at the truth of God. I love that phrase. Their hearts burned within them. Brothers and sisters, do our hearts burn at the truth of God's word as we read it on our own or as we hear it proclaimed or as people speak it to us? I'm not asking just for subjective feelings. I know sometimes it's hard. Sometimes I read my Bible in the morning and I'm reading it. And I do that thing where you get to the end of the page and you say, I don't even know what I just read. And that happens, and yet we want to ask God, give me a heart that burns for your truth. A.W. Tozer talks about children of the burning heart. He says this in The Pursuit of God, To have found God and still to pursue him is the soul's paradox of love. Let me say that again. To have found God, think about these guys, they found him, on the road, but then they continued to pursue him. To have found God and still to pursue him is the soul's paradox of love, scorned indeed by the too easily satisfied religionist, but justified in happy experience by the children of the burning heart. So to see Jesus in Scripture and to have our hearts burn, understanding the salvation that he's come, it doesn't stop, but it, it ignites a flame that continues to burn where we want to know more and more about who he is, that the true child of God will thirst and hunger for God's word and want to know what he is saying and who he is. Now, I would just, if you don't feel that, we should pray for that. God, I've lost my, my this burning heart for your truth. Restore that to me. We sing this song, Jesus, Thou Joy of Loving Hearts. One of the verses is, We taste of thee, O living bread, and long to feast upon thee still. We drink of thee, the fountainhead, and thirst our souls from thee to fill. Jesus is revealed in the scriptures. Notice next, Jesus is revealed in the breaking of bread. What does that mean? He breaks the bread. That's how they see it. It says it twice. They... In verse, in verse 30 and 31, when he breaks the bread, their eyes were open. And when they come back and they talk, they say he's known, he was known to them how? The breaking of bread. Luke is telling us something here. And, and he has to be looking at, at, commun- at communion, at the Lord's Supper. Now, Jesus was not celebrating the Lord's Supper here. Um, the bread was not, he was not breaking it in, in, in the same sense. 
And he certainly wasn't drinking the cup. Remember what he said about that cup? I won't drink it again until I drink it anew with you in my kingdom. So this is not the Lord's Supper. But there is something that Luke has taken us back to that and reminding us of what the breaking of the bread symbolizes. There's a remembrance that happens in remembering what Jesus has done. That Jesus' body was broken for our sins. That he took the punishment for our sins upon himself. And by his stripes we are healed. That apart from Christ in our sins we deserve the punishment of death. And Jesus, by having his body broken willingly, laying down his life, takes that penalty for us. And then gives us new life in him. So I think part of this is Jesus is revealed in a unique way when we take the Lord's Supper together. That's why Jesus says to keep doing it in remembrance of him. There's something special about that. He tells us to do it and that that is a place where we understand who God is more and more, where he reveals himself to us. I think beyond that, there's this theme of fellowship. Luke Doesn't Luke keep bringing up meals? He just keeps talking about people eating together all the time. Table fellowship. There's something about that. He keeps talking about that. And I think even as the Lord's Supper is not a meal that we take by ourselves, but it's a meal that we take together, that there's a revelation of God in the church gathered together, breaking bread together. Not just the communion bread, but the bread that we break together on Sunday nights. That, that we fellowship together. And in seeing one another, the reflections of who God is, we see who Christ is. And then there has to be a, a forward look, isn't there? To when Jesus will break bread and we will fully see him. We will be known even as... We will know him even as we are known. We will see him more clearly than we have ever seen him when he returns. When he sits at the table and breaks the bread once more and passes it around. We will know him. So Jesus is risen. Jesus is hidden. But Jesus is revealed. He's revealed in windy places. He's revealed in the scriptures. He's revealed in the breaking of bread. The Lord's Supper, fellowship in the coming day. But remember what we said. Jesus, resurrected and revealed, brings comfort and clarity in the midst of our sadness and confusion. As we come to see and to know the resurrected Christ, sadness and confusion flee. Isn't that what happens for these guys? They are sad and they are confused. Then Jesus breaks bread. Their eyes are open. Are they sad anymore? Not a bit. Are they confused? Maybe a little bit. <laughs> but there's a lot more clarity at this point in light of the resurrected Christ. And as we've been studying the resurrection, as I've been trying to think through these sermons, I think that part of the reason we're sad and part of the reason we're confused in life is because we forget that Jesus has risen. And so I want to maybe encourage this practice in you this week, that as you feel sad, or confused, or, or depressed, or just not sure what's going on in life, that we would think, Jesus is risen. Jesus is risen. And that that would bring some sort of clarity to situations. I, I mean, think about the, the hardest thing that we go through in life. Death. Whether our own death or someone that we love. Jesus is risen. And, and if I put my faith in Christ, then my death doesn't have to bring any fear to me anymore, because I know that I will be with him. And, and I know that my loved ones who have put their faith in Christ, I don't have anything to fear because Jesus is risen. When I get sad or confused, 
about my life, and I don't know what's going on, can pause and say, Jesus is risen. It makes sense of everything else. It just brings some clarity to it. I don't know what I'm supposed to do or why I'm supposed to do it or any of this stuff, but okay, Jesus is risen. He is who he said he was. He is the Messiah. He is the King, and my life is to be lived to glorify him. That's the greatest thing that's ever happened in the world. Of course I'm going to give my life over to that. I know what I'm supposed to do. I'm supposed to glorify God in my body while I'm doing these things. We get confused about sin and its apparent power over us. We don't know how to deal with that. But we go to Colossians 3 that we read and we say, Jesus is risen. And if Jesus is risen, then I am risen. I am dead to sin and I am alive to Christ. I think there's a, a thousand applications to this. But, but in the midst of sadness, in the midst of despair, in the midst of depression and confusion, and we're just not sure what we're doing, that, why we're doing it, okay. Jesus is alive. He is who he said he is. And not only that, but he's coming back. He will return. So as Christ reveals himself to us in the scriptures, as he reveals himself to us in the Gospels and fellowship with one another, he drives away sadness. He drives away confusion. We're still going to struggle with these things. But this week, when you're tempted in those areas, just go back maybe to the, to the words of the angels. He is not here, but has risen. That brings some clarity. Think about these guys on the road when they saw him for the first time. How their eyes were opened. Ask God, Lord, give me a burning heart for the truth of this. Of course, we're still going to struggle with these things, yes. But one day in the new kingdom, we will break bread with Jesus again. And, and he will break the bread and be revealed to us in all of his glory in a way that we've never seen him before. As the risen Christ, as the conquering king, the king of kings and lord of lords. And I think in that moment, all of our despair and, and all of our worrying and all of our fear and all of our sadness, it's going to be like foolishness. It's going to be like dullness of heart that these guys had because we're going to see clearly. And so let's keep returning to Jesus, resurrected, and allow him to, as the song says, melt the clouds of sin and sadness Drive the dark of doubt away. Giver of immortal gladness. Fill us with the light of day. Let's pause and reflect on God's word, on the fact that Jesus is risen. And then I'll close this in prayer. Lord, we come together and we say once again, we believe, Lord. We believe that you are risen. We believe that you are alive. Lord, may that drive away sadness and despair and discouragement. I pray, Lord, if there's anyone who's coming here and they're just so weighed down, so confused, Lord, that you would give them a clear picture of who you are. That you would help them to see 
that Jesus Christ crucified and resurrected brings clarity and comfort to us. Would you do that now by the power of your spirit? And fill us this week with just the reminders that Jesus is risen, Jesus is alive, and he brings all of these things together for us. Lord, thank you that you are coming again. We're still going to struggle, but one day we will not. We will see you as you are. We will know you even as we are known. Look forward to that good day, God. Pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.